You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row, with the number seven spelled out, or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. There's, I think if you're going to do Shakespeare on film, there are certain obligations that you you take on with that. And what I appreciate about this production of Twelfth Night and and Nunn's take on stage versus film is that I think for the most part he fulfills those obligations. But I'm curious when you when you hear Shakespeare on film, what does that mean to to you? What is that? What do you, what do you what do you want from that? What is what do you expect? Or what are you looking for? Oh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> and you've had contradictory answers. I think part of it seems to depend on the play. Because our answer for Romeo and Juliet seemed to be, we don't even care that Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes cannot speak the speech. It somehow doesn't matter. <laughs> and we still love the Baz Luhrmann. On the other hand, we threw so much shade at Curzel's Macbeth because they couldn't speak the speech. And we complained about it and decided it wasn't Shakespeare. So um, it seems to be all over the place. And then in our Much Ado About Nothing episode, if it ever airs, we had a extremely <laughs> impassioned debate about whether or not the Joss Whedon version was any good because of how they dealt with the speech. So I'm not sure what the answer is. I think part of it is, to me, that a good production is, as opposed to just like an adaptation, is that you're putting you're trying to put the play on film and part of the reason to do that is to be able to reach a broader audience with a good with good actors that film allows you to basically collect you know an amazing cast that you couldn't necessarily have on stage and then put it up for posterity for people who can see it around the world in a way that you know nobody could access or uh, only a small number of people could see the globe production live for example but how you do that can be there seems to be all kinds of different ways of doing that, and I'm not necessarily sure I have a preference for what works. Like I, I love what Branda does with Much Do About Nothing, and then on the other hand, I love what Baz Luhrmann does with Romeo and Juliet, even though he cuts the text like crazy and <laughs> mess like it's horrible for text, but it seems to understand the text better than Zeffirelli's, which is somewhat more faithful to the text, which is kind of ironic. And then you have, like, I really love Ray Fiennes' Coriolanus, which what it does is it translates the play into film conventions really, really effectively, I think. So I don't know that there's really one pat answer, and it seems to, like, depend on the play and even, you know, that you could have two wildly different films. Like, we liked both of the Henry V's by Thea Sharik and Kenneth Branagh, even though there are huge problems with the text cuts in the Sharik one. Yeah. I don't know how helpful that was, but it's, it's very helpful to the place. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like with the comedies, what I'm looking for in terms of a film of a Shakespeare play is 
I want to be able to really appreciate the language, but like, I feel like it, it needs to be uh, when it's on film, it needs to be super clear, pretty much what everything means, what every joke is, because you know, your people are going to see a movie. They're not going to see a play. And even though it's the same words, I think it's much more important for the actors to like really to sell the the Shakespearean language. Um, it's, I mean, that's. I mean, obviously, it's the opposite. Was I don't feel that way about Romeo and Juliet. And it's not to say there isn't great language in Romeo and Juliet, but I feel like if you're asking people to laugh at something, they really do absolutely have to get it more in a more nuanced way than um, than with something that they're supposed to react to with some other kind of emotion or reaction. Um, and so that's why I think I love Nun's Twelfth Night and Bren as much as you do, um, just because the way the language is done is is beautiful and it feels natural. It feels like a, like those words are really important for that joke in that moment that you couldn't change the language and have it still be funny. And it feels, yeah, I mean, it's just, it just is, it's just funny. It just feels like people being funny with each other. And um, yeah. Whereas in Romeo and Juliet, it's more for me, certainly Baz Luhrmann's, it's more about the emotion and, and, portraying this relationship, whether or not each line is, is, you know, tight or, or on the meaning or whether it's done well or not. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. I think the other thing that I sort of didn't say, but that is important is that there are things you can do on film that you can't do on stage. And of course, vice versa. Um, And I think one of the things, well, two things that are really valuable in film, one is the close up. And you see that get used extremely well, say, in like Branagh's Henry V, where he gets to give whispery, you know, cold, whispery delivery that you just couldn't do on stage. Um, or in the Richard II with Rupert Gould, where you get to actually see Ben Wishaw looking twitchy, um, which, of course, his <clears throat> people can't see. Uh, and then the other thing is the ability to just, like, do one take and have it be spontaneous. And I think that the play extempore in Richard Eyre's Henry IV Part One is like one of the best scenes of Shakespeare ever put on film. And it was their first take and all of the stuff that was happening in the boar's head was people just reacting and it's amazing. And they didn't have to repeat it endlessly into getting and get it perfect. They just were able to do it spontaneously. And of course, because you have like Simon Russell Beale who can just like speak Shakespeare, like whatever, no big deal. Yeah. So but then on the other hand, I think you get you get into problems with how do you deal with the meta theatrical aspects? How do you deal with breaking the the fourth wall? And so there are all kinds of things that are really important in a lot of Shakespeare plays that then become difficult to translate into film. And some things, some adaptations have done it more um, successfully than others. And some, I guess, some plays make it easier to do that than others. To me, the some of it comes down to the challenge of deciding whether a production is like a a film version of a Shakespeare play. Sometimes it's just a platform for the actor or for a performance. Sometimes a director is using it to bring in, in sort of a more traditional theatrical way to, to bring a new version out of the play to, to shed some fresh light or to like, you know, present and capture a take. And other times, uh, like I'm thinking particularly of Justin Kurtzel's Macbeth, 
uh, director has no respect for the text and imposes a vision <laughs> onto a play um, and just uses it as a platform for whatever they want to explore. Or explore. And it, it doesn't always work in that way. Um, and I mean, I think what's another interesting difference between them is the fact that, you know, film starts at a, at a script and a storyboard. Uh, and so they're able to frame and we're talking about like framing shots. Like it's a, it's an intentional thing that's decided far in advance of, of where you're going to use close ups and two shots and broad, broad sets and where you're going to try and set the, the scenery. Whereas in, you know, a film production of a, of a stage play often, sometimes it's seems to be done almost at, uh, on the fly in terms of whatever captures uh, the bulk of the action. And that seems to be sort of the, the approach with a lot of NT live productions, or uh, it felt like the, the filming and editing of uh, this globe production of 12th night was much more thoughtful. And, and I mean, they, they also had enough cameras placed around and I mean, by the nature of the stage, the venue, uh, the ability to, be a little more precise in choosing how and what to show at any at any time. Yeah, I think the other thing that's that is important to remember too is there's a there's a strong relationship too between the stage and between most production most filmed adaptations of Shakespeare. I mean, there are exceptions, but if you look at like you know, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, he played it at the RSC before he put it on film. And then I think he also directed it in his theater company. Much Ado About Nothing, he played Benedict on stage before he put it on film. Ray Fiennes' Coriolanus, he played Coriolanus on stage in London and New York. And then a couple of years later, he put it on film. Richard III with um, Ian McKellen, he played that on stage, um, directed by Richard Eyre. And then they turned it into a film. Like a lot of the really great, great films of Shakespeare have been you know, started as stage productions and then they made changes and turned it into a film. And I think, I mean, what you were saying, Craig, about how it starts with shots, it's, it's really fascinating when you read Brandon's shooting script for um, for his films. I've looked at, I mean, I've read the Much Ado one in full and I've sort of flipped through the Henry V one. And it's really, really broken down in a way that you would, you know, would take weeks of rehearsal to do that if you were doing a stage production like he has not only has he pared down the text a lot but with each line he's given directions on how to say it and what the meaning is intended to be which is something that I would think is well Dan can probably speak to this much better than I can because I I only know from hearing other people talk about it not from actually having been in a Shakespeare production but that would normally be a much more collaborative process where there's a lot of discussion and work and and working with other actors and then you you discover who the characters are as you're doing that. Whereas it seems like in Branagh's films anyway, he has a very clear idea about who everybody is, how he wants each of the lines delivered, what he wants to bring out in each of those. And then that, you know, I'm sure helps the actors give a really clear performance, but it also is much more of this sort of directorial director's film than it is, you know, an actor's film. Yeah, they talk about that that the the theater is the medium of the the actor and that the film is the medium of, of the director because they have so much control. The director has so much control. In the modern theater, the director has a lot of control as well. But Shakespeare's theater, they did not. That, that was not a, that wasn't a thing. You know, directors weren't that wasn't a that wasn't a thing you did. You didn't rehearse for six two weeks six weeks of previews and then run it for, you know, it, that, that's not, that's not real. <laughs> so it's a very interesting place we find ourselves in where you go, okay, 
This is the Trevor Nunn. You know, even in the, the vocabulary that we're using in this pod, the Trevor Nunn 12th night versus the Mark Rylance 12th night. Mark Rylance did not direct that 12th night. He played Olivia. Like, <laughs> but, you know, but that's an actor. Well, that's also just like Nunn is a legend. I think. If, of course. So is Mark Rylance. Right, right, right. But I mean, the direct, it's Tim Carroll, I think, who directed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is not the same kind of legend that like Trevor Nunn is as a director. So, I mean, you're right that it's also a film, but I think if it were the, if, if Trevor Nunn had directed the play, then at least he would get co-billing. Would, would you though, if it was Trevor Nunn directing, would you be like, oh, the Trevor Nunn and Mark Rylance, Twelfth Night? Or the, yes, because so- when I talk about the Ben Wishaw Hamlet that I'm dying to see, I call it the Ben Wishaw Trevor Nunn Hamlet. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Good on you, I guess. Like, <laughs> I mean, among like Shakespeare nerds, though, like Trevor Nunn is definitely like, <laughs> you invoke Trevor Nunn, and it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, it'll be good. Oh yeah, right. But in in common parlance, I mean, I assume most people would probably know it by the like Helena Bonham Carter, yeah, production of Twelfth Night. Right, right, right. And then we talk about Coriolanus as like Fines versus Hiddleston, as opposed to Fines versus Josie Rourke in our uh, in our podcast mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I just feel that the the director has such a clear advantage in film to go, look here, I want you to see this. Whereas on the stage, there's a great shot, and it was late in the play in the Globe production where there's an audience member who is just responding so positively to a bit of business that Fabian is doing. Unrelated to the scene, but Fabian ha- happens to be a foot away from this man who is standing with his arms on the stage at the globe. And for him in that moment, that was about Fabian and it has nothing to do with the story at all, but it's just because there are two human beings, two feet away, which you don't get in, you don't get in film. The director is like, look at this. Here's what I want you to see, which is awesome. Like it's not, there's no commentary on what's better or worse. It's just different. Yeah. I think. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I definitely agree that the theater is more of an actor's medium. I'm just like a nerd for Shakespeare theater. Well, theater directors generally. So you should do a like, podcast yeah. about that. <laughs> hmm, maybe I will. I really loved the audience in the Globe production so much. Just having them, I mean, obviously you can't, you can't film a production at, at the Globe and not see the audience. It's impossible. But it's just so great having them there and being able to see their reactions, good and bad. Like, it's, it's so nice to be able to catch, like, someone in the background who's, like, really into it and, like, laughing or, or looking very serious. And then three, three rows behind them, there's someone who's, like, nodding off. It's, right. it's great. It, um, it makes you feel more like you're sort of immersed in it. and. Of course, I think having the audience there for the Globe production, it made I really felt like it made it funnier because their response was infectious. Mm-hmm. The audience's response to um, yeah. the jokes, the laugh track, was, totally helped. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and it also gave the opportunity for uh, you know like the dramatic stage pauses where like with the audience present, it adds that sort of like pregnant hilarity that you're just waiting for something to happen and you, you can like sense the tension between audience and actor in that, in that moment that you couldn't do if it was just a straight film. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I found really effective in the, in the globe production, and it's partly because they have 
you know, people actually standing in the stalls. And as Dan said, you know, with their arms up on the stage, they're that close. So the, the way that they can actually break the fourth wall is it's really, really easy because the audience is right there. And so basically what they did is they had actors move downstage and often it was, they were downstage in a, in one of the corners of the stage. And all they had to do was turn their head at the audience and make a comment. And it might've been a comment that would have read as a comment to themselves or even somewhat to the other people in the scene on film, like you'd have to look directly into the camera, Richard the three, Richard the third style otherwise pretty much. But um, on stage, they could just have a ton of moments where they just looked at the audience like, what, what just happened? (laughs) And that really helped with a lot of the comedy and with a lot of like little, little moments and, and giving people sort of asides that just, you know, you couldn't really do on film without making a big deal of it because you don't really have people looking into lens all the time in film. Right. I thought yeah. Feste was especially masterful, uh, Feste in the Globe production of doing, then the very, uh, when he talks, we're talking to Mariah, he has the line, uh, well, there, you know, in the Globe, you have the groundlings and the, the who you play your jokes to as an actor is really interesting. And he has this great moment where he plays many a good hanging prevents a bad marriage. And you can see him, he looks up to the balcony and that's something that was like, that's a bold choice as to go, I'm taking this to like probably the people who paid the most to make the lowest level, (laughs) like the most base joke of it's a dick joke. Like (laughs) you got a big dick, your marriage is going to be fine. And he takes it up to the upper balcony and then takes a look down to the, the groundlings. And he's like, you like that? <laughs> like, and that's something you can't get on film. Where, and right. in person, you're like, oh, Fessy just burned the, the top tier. That's awesome. It's just really neat. The difference of where you choose to play your jokes on stage versus where you choose to land your jokes. You know, the director has, there's some great jokes in this in a scene in the very beginning when Cesario and Orsino are talking and she pushes him in the nun film, Cesario pushes Orsino and he hits his arm on the rocks and it's like a smash cut back to him back on the bed. That's a director's joke where he's like, Oh, it's the same scene on text. It's the exact same scene, but because they choose to change the location, you get a, I, I laughed out loud. I was like a guffawing at a director's choice. You can't, you can't do that on stage. You can't like bring in a new set real quick. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't know. I I really loved the moment after Cesario leaves with Olivia in the in the Globe production when Rylance just turns to the audience and goes, What is his parentage? <laughs> and just holds his head. It's like at that moment Olivia was talking to the audience, like, like, did you see me say that? What the hell? And uh, there were a few moments like that, and it was, yeah, it was beautiful. And and um, I've seen um, other filmed versions of Globe Productions where they've done very similar things, lots of great joking with the audience, and it is just, it's so great. It just adds a whole other layer of of um, enjoyment to to the comedies. I think. But I think it's so elegantly blocked, too, just to get actors in the right place so that all they have to do is turn their head mm-hmm. um, or they're already standing there and they just have to, like, stare at the audience and go, you know, am I right? Or that was crazy, right? Or whatever. And they just end up right in the right place. And, and then they can do that with such facility or, you 
like Dan was saying, just look up in the balcony. It, it's like a fairly subtle thing, but it, it adds so much. And to get the same kind of, you know, meta theatrical thing going on, it, it's much more difficult on film. And especially in like a play where it's all about, you know, like people dressing up as people who they aren't and getting mistaken, then you kind of lose some of that. Like, I think just talking about, you know, the twinning that partly because you're further away from them, just the fact that, you know, they've got the same long red hair and the same kind of hat. It's like you sort of instantly buy them as twins. I think they do a pretty good job with the, the, you know, the mustache and the, and the, the haircut in the film, but you know, they don't even need to cast actors who look alike on stage. They just, you know, paint their faces white and add the costumes. And you're like, sure, yeah, they're twins. Can't tell the car, can't tell them apart. I love that on the film, the uh, the little fake mustache is treated like Clark Kent's glasses in Superman. So it's like the minute she <laughs> takes the mustache off, it's oh my god, it's Violet. <laughs> Antonio too, when he drops his glasses, it's like, oh, I know you. It's <laughs> a pirate. <laughs> the idea of audience is interesting. I feel that you can't the film affords you the ability to have you know in that first scene with Rosino, he has 10 men in the room with him just standing there watching him. And when or when you meet Olivia, she has Malvolio and Mariah, but also four or five women in waiting there with her. On on stage, you really can't do that. That's that's ten more contracts you got to pay. You got to block schedule. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So you end up with a court of Valentine and Curio, and maybe one more. But you you're able you you achieve an audience on film of people inside of the world, whereas on stage you get the audience of the people who have come in to see the play, who become suddenly you don't really you don't need all those extra people because you have. 200 spectators that are there that are part of the that are part of the audience which is both beautiful and frustrating when i mean also if you put people on stage that many people on stage it has a different different meaning than if you put that many people as internal audiences on film like what sam mendes did in his king lear is he had something like 20 supernumeraries who are standing in for the hundred nights and it only took 20 of them and they felt like this, you know, really overbearing presence, like Lear is an asshole for bringing all of these people with him to his daughter's house. And you can feel it because they're there and they're making noise. Um, and then his film equivalent was Inspector, where he had, but he needed like hundreds of people to fill the villain's lair and give the same effect. And it was very clearly he went, I did this in King Lear on stage and now I'm going to put it in film. Like it's very obviously he stole from himself and he said that as well. But on film, it took like a huge hallway and tons of people and a big set. And on stage, like, you know, not that 20 people is, isn't, is you know, a significant amount of cost and difficulty. Um, right. Less so for the National Theater than for like a smaller company. But they had the same kind of overbearing effect as thousands, as like hundreds of people on screen. And so if you had had that kind of internal audience on stage, it would also seem like overcrowded almost. Right. It changes the picture because they're they don't just show up for one shot. They're there for that whole scene. And then then it becomes yeah. like, how do I deal with it? As a director, you go, how do you? Where do I put you? I want you for this one moment, but now I need you there for the whole time. <laughs> like, God. I got a costume. You got to give you a dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> different, different beasts. I was 
was actually in that uh, first scene with Orsino when you get that shot panning across all of the the grim-faced mustachioed dudes in the room. Um, I was actually thinking as I watched it about how different it would be on stage. I mean, obviously, I didn't think about I didn't I didn't think about the overcrowding thing, but also just because each each shot, each moment on each face is so deliberate in a film. It's it, kind of getting back to that idea about where the audience is looking. Um, I reckon if you recreated that on stage, at least one of those dudes would be rolling his eyes at one point. Like you'd maybe play it for laughs a little bit because I could just feel the frustration of this room full of serious dudes while Orsino is like uh, sort of just pontificating about the nature of love and music and stuff. <laughs> and, and it was just all these dudes standing there like, really, really, I had to do this? And <laughs> an eye roll would have been great, but I don't know that it would have worked on film uh, the way it would have in a theatre. I mean, on the other hand, too, I think that, I mean, Trevor Nunn has made lots of movies, but he's really a theatre director more than he, in the sense that, you know, that's what his most of his resume is, is doing theatre. And... I think that he there's a lot of interesting ways in which he's sort of trying to create certain sort of theatrical elements within the film. Like there's a lot of emphasis on entrances and exits um, and the way that he uses curtains in order to give like Malvolio a grand grand entrance by pulling back the curtains. The way you see people open and closing doors into the rooms and see people left in a room when somebody has left the room, like that's very much mimicking, you know, coming on and off stage and having that similar sort of effect. And even the reveal with Malvolio's stockings, you see him, he comes into the room and he's walking behind a couch. So you can't mm-hmm. see the stockings. And then he walks past the couch and then it's like a, because he's had this long entrance and you know, he's coming going to come in with yellow stockings cross guarded, but, but none makes us wait as he walks past behind the couch and then it's a big reveal it's so tricky to figure out how you do those reveals in person because on any stage and especially the globe it's so exposed that you get one shot like is it going to be a slow reveal is it going to be you know you frame it and then there they are versus that just what you're talking about that anticipation of oh yeah oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh I, remember, I remember what's going on now this is the stocking bit. And so you get you get the smile first. He walks in and all smiles. And then there's there are the, the the stockings and the cross garter. It can be so magnificent to get that payoff. But showing your hand and choosing when you want to reveal the joke, reveal and that doesn't that's not just comedy, that's anything really. Do you make this is it a subtle do you think here's a question. Did you find the revelations of character more subtle or more aggressive in the film or versus the stage production? So before I answer that, um, I just want to go back to your Malvolio statement. Um, yes. Because I think what's interesting is this gets into the, the issue of where you can cut in the text for film and where you can't in theater. Mm-hmm. Because... They in the theater, the way they get that anticipation is you have um, Mariah saying, "Oh, he's coming." Yeah. Um, and then that's like a huge anticipation, like Mariah's excited for him coming, and then we're excited for him coming. And then they, I think, they cut all of that in the film, and, you, and instead you just have this very quick reveal because you have so much control of of that, and so we still get that moment, but it's done in like three seconds instead of in dialogue and in like an extra scene. 
Right. Yeah, because the actor in the Globe made that. That was one of those low pitch moments of, oh, he's coming, madam. Yeah. Huge laugh. Um, which is, is that truthful though? Was that a truthful moment? I had, I, that bothered me. That moment bothered me because I, that he chose to make that a laugh line versus like, watch out for your life. He's coming and he is crazy right now. Mm. It didn't feel authentic to me. It was very funny and I laughed, but it didn't feel, it felt fake. I mean, I guess. I wonder if it, if you even remember whether this was an issue when you saw it on stage, because I could see how it might not be a problem if you're seeing it there on stage, because as long as he was looking out at the audience, right, then you, you feel as though it. it's, ter- it's directed at us as opposed to directed at Olivia. But if it's, you know, a recording of it, then it's maybe reads more as fake. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't remember when I saw it live. I probably, I probably laughed really hard with everyone around me if I had to guess because that's the beauty of the theater is you, you get caught up in it but watching yeah. it yesterday in preparation for this podcast I was like uh, inauthentic inauthentic like that moment yeah. didn't it, it really bothered me interesting it didn't stick out for me uh, I mean I just found it really funny and maybe part of that goes to the nature of madness being less of a serious subject in the globe production than than in the film like we're the audience is very much in on the joke of you know that they they all know they're just feigning this madness to try and try and get him over the top, and uh, we don't maybe put a lot of credence in Olivia's judgment anyway, in, in Mark Rylance's Olivia. So uh, maybe those all combined together. I mean, to answer your question too about what which one is whether it's more jarring on stage or in film, I think i think none was really going for clarity and so sometimes i think the lines were delivered too slowly um or without enough variation in speed um and i think that the globe production really really made use of rhythmic changes and speed changes the way that feste generally speaks really quickly and or even just the way characters cut each other off and one person is speaking you know olivia is always speaking quite slowly and then she might get cut off by Cesario or um, and, and somebody speaking in a different rhythm and that that helped a lot with not just defining the characters, but working with, um, you know, creating a rhythm for the whole play, which, you know, I, I think Caitlin was saying um, that, you know, I had the same reaction like, oh, God, it's going to be three hours. I thought it was two hours. But then it just, you know, it flew by. I didn't find the runtime an issue, even though I when I started, I was like, oh, God, three hours. And I think. Sometimes the non-film sort of dragged for me, and I, I have the impression that sometimes the rhythms between the characters was something he created in the edit more than something that was necessarily done on set. And so you don't have the same kind of vibrant push-pull differences in rhythms that sort of keeps it alive, even though I think, like, individually it's all fine or it's all good. I am um, – I love the, the fact that the uh... – the like slow reveal of Malvolio and the yellow stockings in the Globe production allowed for the slightly delayed reaction time of Olivia versus the audience. So we see him mm. come in, but then we get the glory and I laughed so hard. I thought I might wake up my whole house at, at uh, when Olivia it just starts to speak and says, uh, how now Malvolio? Oh, <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> funny. 
happened. It was just beautiful. And uh, it just added to the whole thing. Just that, like, that thing where, yeah, I think on stage it might be easier to have the audience see something before the character. And, um, yeah, that was so funny. It was one of the biggest laughs that I got, the whole thing. When you also got a lot more of being able to see characters hiding or, or revealing, um, you know, the way like Viola sort of at the back is upstage and sort of hidden behind something when the first time that um, Sebastian and she are on stage at the same time, whereas mm-hmm. you just sort of had Viola kind of off in the distance, but, you know, not really in frame in the film. And so it kind of creates a credible Oh, there's a there's another one, but I only see one at this time. What what's what's going on on stage? Where you sort of lose that a little bit on film. I think also that the Globe production made really great use of just having people characters running across the stage um, with excitement. Um, yeah. Whether that's you know like Olivia running over to Sebastian and planting a giant kiss on him, or you know when when the the twins are finally reunited and they run across the stage to each other like. The closest that none comes to that is almost cheesy the way they run together and then they both pop into frame at the same time in close up and they're finally reunited. Like, I mean, he was obviously saving that shot and it works, but it's, it's also just like a little bit cheesy in a way that is yeah. just not a problem on stage. Yeah, that, that's fairly, I think that was fairly consistent with all, a lot of the choices, which were like, Here's my mallet, and boom, there it is, right on, right, like right on top of the head. But I'm okay with. It. I love it. Like <laughs> somehow it works. I love yeah. this movie, but I'm also like, damn it, these are so obvious. And you know that that rushing of the the reu- the reunion is so beautiful, and it's what you want. And I guess that's kind of. I mean, that's maybe that's maybe that's just it. It's like this is what I want. Is I want the predictable. This is a comedy. This is. This is Twelfth Night. And that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. The next part of the discussion will be available to download on Friday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H dash R-O-W dot com.